Aloha, Ohana in Christ. I am not uh, Pastor John Dingannon. I am Joel Dingannon, the younger, just kidding, older brother of, of your Pastor John Dingannon. And I'm here to visit your beautiful island, uh, Hawaii, uh, to visit my brother's family. And my brother thought what a better way to spend a relaxing time of vacation to refresh and to rec to recalibrate life and ministry by preaching God's word. So I have the distinct honor and privilege to do just that. When my brother asked me to preach this morning, I replied with a question, what topic do you have in mind? And he indicated that your church is going through a series called the best ever, best summer ever rather. And he explained that the best summer ever has to do with uh, best ever. And so I began to quickly think about what is the best ever, and sure enough, the Bible is quite clear what is the best ever, and the greatest of all in Scripture is love. So to start off, I'd like to read from three particular passages, all quoted in uh, various parts of the Bible. The first one is in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 45. It's called the Great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. Secondly, we'll be reading from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 5 to 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. The greatness of love this morning rests on three key ideas, and these will be the three points that will drive this morning's talk. Number one, the definition of love, or what is love? What is love? Second, the manner of love, or how do we love? How do we love? And finally, the implication of love. That is, what's the significance that we love? Firstly, the Bible defines love fundamentally as selflessness, so that the antonym of love is not hate, but rather selflessness or selfishness which Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 with the issue of meat offered to idols. In chapter 8, verse 1, This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. In this particular context, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is addressing a particular group of the church members, Jewish Christians, who began to go to the market and um, buy, at a discount, uh, meat that has been offered to idols. Of course, for the Jewish Christian, this is not a big deal. They grew up with the Shema we just read. There's, there's only one God. You shall love Him alone. They grew up with the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. That is, you shall have no other gods before me. So for a Jewish Christian to buy meat at a discounted price because it's been offered to idols, it's not a big deal. However, there are newly converted Gentile Christians who, when they see meat offered to idol purchased by Jewish Christians, they began to think that maybe idolatry is okay. Maybe that's fine. So the knowledge here that Paul is talking about that's puffing up 
is addressing the knowledge of the Jewish Christians. They know there's only one God, so I can continue to eat meat offered to the idols. But love builds up. That's talking about you have to give up eating meat offered to idols so that the weaker brothers, the Gentile Christians, who are not yet accustomed to uh, the issue of idolatry, would not be stumbled thinking that idolatry is okay. Indeed, Paul says, if any of my brother would be stumbled because of eating meat at all, then Paul says, I will just be a vegetarian my whole life. I will give up meat, I will give up my rights, my privilege, my desire to eat meat for the sake of others. So love then carries the notion of being selfless. So the building up of love is giving up your desire. Even if it means, if you're a steak lover like I am, giving up your love for steak so that others would not be stumbled on account of it. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Paul expressly defines love as selflessness. Love does not seek its own. It is not selfish. It is not provoke. Love does not take into account any wrongdoing. So the antonym of love in the Bible is not hate, but rather selfishness. Selflessness as the fundamental definition of love is at the heart of God's love for us by sending His own Son, Jesus Christ, for us on the cross. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, In this is love. Not that we love God, that's not true. We never love God, but that He loved us. And what does it mean that God loved us? He sent His Son to be the appropriation for our sins. Here we can't help but think about Philippians chapter 2. Consider Jesus who, although He was in the very equality with God, He does not take His uh, status of divine sonship to take advantage of it. Instead, He voluntarily humbled Himself. And became, uh, and became obedient even to the point of death on the cross. So what is love? Giving up the advantages of heaven to be found as a human and to die suffering in humiliation at the cross. Also that we, who would otherwise die because of our sin, might now have life eternal through the love that God demonstrated in Jesus Christ. Indeed, the greatest display of love is the ultimate voluntary laying down of self. And that is what Jesus did for us on the cross in uh, John chapter 15. Greater love has no one than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. So love in the Bible means being selfless, not seeking your own, but seeking to meet the needs of others to be greater than your own. Now, if love is defined as selflessness, then we're all in big trouble. That is, we all know as a self-evidentiary, transcendentally given fact that all of us are naturally selfish. And the Bible has no qualms about being realistic to the uh, nature of man, that we are all naturally selfish. Paul 
alerts us of this in Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. So you love your wife as yourself. For he who loves his wife loves himself. Here's the explanation. For no one ever hated his own body. That's the a priori self-evidentiary truth for all time. But he feeds it and he takes care of it, just as Christ also does the church. So the truth that is evident to all that you need no convincing of is that everybody loves themselves. Indeed, Paul says, no one in the history of humanity ever hated his own body. And the proof that you love yourself, just in case you need more convincing, according to Paul, is that when you're hungry, you feed it. Or when you're sick, you go to the doctor, you take care of it. It's almost lunchtime, perhaps, for you. I'm sure most of us have already thought about lunch, what we're going to eat. And why is it that when we're hungry, our first impulse is to eat? Why is it that we get cranky when we are hungry or hangry, as they say? It's because we love ourselves. If you ever need convincing of how much you love yourself, when you get sick, your desire for Tylenol, when you have pain, muscle ache, toothache, your desire to see the doctor, to take pain medications, that is proof, according to the Apostle, that you do love yourself. In our church, back in uh, Los Angeles, where I'm from, we have many nurses. And the last thing that nurses want to see in their patients, especially for those who are dying, is for them to suffer, especially when the patient is terminal. Even then, at that moment, the desire to escape pain, according to Paul, you desire to take care of your body, is proof that you love yourself. So the greatest love of all is not learning to love yourself. With apologies to Whitney Houston, you already love yourself. It is primal. It is foundational. It's a given. The greatest love of all, indeed the true def definition of love, is loving others as much as you already love yourself. And herein lies the problem. We can't do this. We love ourselves most supremely. We think of ourselves first when we're hungry. We don't think about others. We think about our pain first when we're sick. We don't really care about others. So unless we eat and are satisfied, then we can begin to think about loving others. And Jesus makes this point in the Sermon of the Mount that the prerequisite to obeying the greatest commandment, which is to love others as much as we love ourselves, is that God must first give us bread to eat, so that once we are satisfied with eating from the bread that God gives us, once we're full, then we can meet the needs of others, and we can love them as much as we love ourselves. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 9 and following, the manner how to love, which is the second point, 
Is there anyone among you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? He's talking to the dads here, we just passed Father's Day. The answer is no. Or if your son asks for a fish, will, will he give him a snake? The answer is no. If you then, although you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, talking to the dads on earth, how much more, right, that phrase, how much more, indicates that the argument is from the lesser to the greater, right? The evil fathers, they know how to give good gifts. The greater then is our heavenly father in heaven. He gives us good gifts to those who ask him. And then, he says, in everything, treat others as you would want them to treat you. Why? Because if you love your neighbors as yourself, this, loving your neighbors as yourself, fulfills the law and the prophets. The sequence here is everything. God must first give us bread to eat as our Heavenly Father. That's first and foremost. Second, once we have bread to eat, then we are satisfied. Third, having our love for self, which is hunger, satisfied, then and only then can we love others as much as we love ourselves. We can meet the needs of others as if, we're, as if it were those needs were our own. Jesus, of course, is a true manna from heaven, the true bread whom God sent down to earth, and we partake of him on Communion Sunday. This is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And that tells us that Jesus is he who died on the cross, so that by his death on the cross, our sins will be forgiven. And that's critical because the reason why people outside of Jesus will never be satisfied and hence will never be able to love as God intends is because only God alone meets our needs. God's presence is our all-satisfying portion. But it is our sin that separates us from the presence of God. Like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden is the first temple. That's where God first dwelt. And because of sin, and ever since the Garden of Eden, all of humanity has been separated from God. Exiled, deported away from God's presence. Jesus then on Communion Sunday tells us that we have forgiveness of sin that we are now restored back to the presence of God. We have returned to the Garden of Eden, as it were. The serpent is crushed on Easter Sunday. Jesus defeated sin and death. In this way, love is nothing more than a public declaration that Jesus meets our every need, that Jesus is more than enough for us, I may still need this food for later. I may still need this money later. And I will give this money to the poor or this food to the homeless person as a declaration by faith that I have everything I need in Jesus Christ, that Jesus meets my needs no matter what. Or you can also say, though my neighbor wronged me, 
Though my spouse betrayed me, or my co-worker slandered me, yet because I have so much forgiveness, grace, kindness, mercy from Jesus, I have plenty to spare. So I can give this grace, mercy, forgiveness, and kindness to my neighbor. And this is love. You have a surplus, abundance in Jesus by His death and resurrection, the manna from heaven. You're so full that you can give to others. And by doing this, feeding the poor, forgiving our neighbor, helping in the church, that, Jesus says, is love. And that is a bold declaration to the world that Jesus is all in all. When we love in this way, meeting the needs of others because Jesus' death and resurrection meet our need, we are therefore perfect before God. And this is the implication of love. The third point. The implication of love is that we are perfect before God. What's the significance that we love by means of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, having forgiveness of sins? It means that we are perfect before God. And this is apparent, especially in the book of James. It's, it's also elsewhere in the Bible. But in James chapter 1, verse 4, And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect here does not mean sinlessness. It doesn't mean that you're batting a thousand percent in the game of morality, that you never sinned. Instead, perfect means that you're fulfilling the intended purpose, or you can say it's mission accomplished. Of course, if you look at James, he's talking about, do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, because you know that these trials produces perseverance, and perseverance produces steadfastness, and through this endurance, you'll have the perfect result. And what is the perfect result? That you may be complete. What does it mean to be complete? That you lack nothing in Jesus. So the only way then for Christians to have joy in the midst of suffering is when they endure through the suffering because through the suffering, not the absence of it, is when we find out that Jesus is my all in all. That despite of cancer, despite of financial setbacks, despite of betrayals from friends and family members, you find out Jesus is everything I need. And once you get to that point of finding out that Jesus is everything you need, then it's mission accomplished for the trials, for the cancer, for the financial setbacks, for the disappointments. Or, James can say, you're perfect. It's perfected. And later in chapter 2, Jesus, uh, James would use the exact same Word again, if you, however, perfect the kingly law, 
The kingly law here means it's the law above all laws. It is the law that is greater than any other law. And that is the law according to the scripture that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus, we just read it. Then you are doing well. You are doing well. So what does it mean that you're doing well? It means that the mission of the law is accomplished when you love your neighbor as yourself. It means here in this context that you don't take advantage of the poor if you read James. That you treat the rich and the poor with both grace and kindness. That you don't favor the rich at the expense of mistreating the poor. Because you love the poor as much as you love yourself because Jesus meets your need. And if you do that, according to James, then you're perfect. Only then, when Jesus meets our needs, can we truly love so that we no longer live for ourselves, remember? Primal love for self, no one ever hated his own body. But now we can live for Christ and his people. Paul makes this clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ, or Christ's love for us, compels us, it controls us, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. So this a priori, self-evidentiary, primal instinct for self-love is gone because it's satisfied by the love of Christ. So you no longer live for yourself, but you live for Jesus because He died for you and because He rose again on their behalf. Love, therefore, is a fulfillment of the law in the same way Christ is a fulfillment of the law. The law is mission accomplished when we meet the needs of our neighbors and consider their needs to be greater than our own as a public declaration that Jesus meets my every need. So though I may need this money later, Lord, I'm going to trust you that you're going to provide for my need every day. So I will give. Lord, I want to be selfish now and sleep in and not help out in ministry at church. But because you satisfy my every need, I'll wake up early, volunteer, and serve because Jesus meets my need. When you do that, the law is perfected in your life. Mission accomplished. For this reason, if we just obey the one law, which is the law of love, we fulfill the rest of the laws, according to Paul and James and Peter and Moses and Jesus. All the laws and the prophets are summed up with one singular law. As Paul says in Romans chapter 13, verse 9, For the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. Right, that's taken from the Ten Commandments. Are summed up, are summarized in this singular law from Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself. According to the Babylonian Talmud, there are about 613 commandments in the Old Testament. 
In the New Testament, there, there is apparently 1,050 commandments with so many commandments. How do we keep track of all of them? To make it worse, James says, if we fail at one part of the law, we, we fail at the whole law. But James also says that if you obey one commandment, you obey the whole law. 613 in the Old Testament, 1,050 in the New. If we just love our neighbor as ourselves, because Jesus' death and resurrection grants us forgiveness of sin, restores us to back to God's presence so that our needs are met in God's presence, enabling us to meet the needs of others, freeing us from selfishness. If we just do that, then we obey all the laws. You will not murder if you're satisfied in Jesus. You will not steal because you trust that God will provide for your needs. You will not covet your neighbor's car, his nice Tesla. You will not covet your neighbor's new iPhone while you have an older model iPhone because you have everything you need in Jesus. So if you're satisfied in Jesus, you obey the entire commandments. Jesus then is glorified in our loving our neighbors. Jesus also says in Matthew chapter 22, verse 38, this is the first and the greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. It's the greatest commandment because it is is the summary of the entire Bible. In Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, Paul engages us in the GOAT debate, the greatest of all time debate of Christian virtues, of Christian gifts. Which virtue is the GOAT, which is the greatest of all time? Well, if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul begins to eliminate some of the, uh, of the candidates. He says, knowledge will be no more, so knowledge is eliminated. When Jesus Christ comes, you won't need knowledge because you can just ask Jesus directly. He says, tongues are no more. So tongues are eliminated. You don't need to speak in tongues to, to edify yourself. You have Jesus in your face. His presence will edify you. There's no prophecy in the new heavens and new earth. So that's eliminated. And at the end, three things remain. In the new heavens and the new earth when Christ comes back. Faith, hope, and love. These are the three things that will remain. I'll be out of a job in heaven. You will need a pastor. You will need somebody preaching, prophesying for you. But three things will last. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Because nothing declares more to the world that Jesus is my everything. Is my everything. When I can forgive my neighbor who wronged me. Because I have so much forgiveness in Jesus. There's no greater statement to the world that Jesus is the king of the universe when we 
turn our cheeks when somebody insults us. Because we know that Jesus endured much greater for us on the cross. And we have so much forgiveness in Jesus that we have a lot to spare. And because we have so much, we give it out freely. In this way, love is the greatest. It will remain. Now let us consider the following as we conclude. This is my challenge for us. Love is the greatest because love perfects us. That is, everything that God intends us for us is fulfilled. Everything that God wants us to be is realized when we meet the needs of others. Because Jesus' death and resurrection satisfy our every need. The greatest obstacle to love is selfishness. The primal love for self. The call to love is not to abandon love for self. That's not it. The biblical call to love is not to say, stop loving yourself. But rather, the call to biblical love is to have Jesus satisfy your love for self so that you're freed to love others. Therefore, be perfect by loving your neighbor as yourself, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. I'd like to read from Matthew 5 as I close. What does it mean to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect? You have heard it say, Jesus says, that it was said to you, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he who causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who, who love you, what reward have you? Don't even tax gatherers do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. What does it mean that our Heavenly Father is perfect? It means that our Heavenly Father causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. What does that mean? Well, obviously that's taken from Noah and the flood and the rainbow. The rainbow means that God is suspending His final wrath until the very end. Because we know we deserve God's wrath now. And every time we see the rainbow after a rain, we are reminded that we're supposed to get God's wrath in full measure now. But yet God is temporarily suspending it until the final day of judgment. He made a covenant to know that He will not judge the world in its entirety until the final day, as much as we deserve it now. So what must God do for that to happen? It means that God must even love His enemies. That God must send rain to both the wicked, His enemies, and the righteous. That God must give blessing to the wicked as much as the righteous. And this is what Jesus means. Be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. 
What does it mean that our Heavenly Father is perfect? He loves His enemies. And if we want to be perfect like our Father, we've got to love our enemies just the same. And the way in which we do that is by repenting from our sin, coming to Jesus, asking for forgiveness, and trusting and relying in Him alone. And then our needs are met, freeing us to love our neighbors, even our enemies, as ourselves. Let us borrow it in prayer. Lord, we ask that the preaching of your word this morning would so compel us to turn to Christ, to repent from our sin. And having forgiveness of sin, Lord, we do ask that you would cause us to be born again, fill us with your spirit, so that being restored back to your presence through your spirit, we are full. We have so much of grace and forgiveness and kindness. We have such a surplus that we can be careless to just give it away. Give it to those who are undeserving. Give it to even our enemies. And when we do that, we are perfect. Because by doing so, we affirm that Jesus is our all in all. Asking all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We praise God once again for you, that God in His wisdom and providence, He has brought you to us to magnify Jesus Christ together with His people and that it is no light thing that you are uh, worshiping the Lord with us, albeit virtually. So we thank God for you. We appreciate it. And we aim to see you soon. And we... uh, Expect that by the grace of God, we can all be reconnected together one day. 